0: Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. All right, hey, we're going to continue our series called Letters from Heaven Here's what we're doing. We are walking through a couple chapters in Revelation where Jesus essentially dictates seven letters to seven different churches, and we're just taking them one letter at a time, and here's why we're taking them. Because apparently Jesus speaks to churches and not just individuals, and sort of the thought experiment that we're running in the back of our minds the whole time is this. If Jesus would write a letter to these churches, what might Jesus write to us? Or what might Jesus be saying to us, not just as individuals, but as a congregation? So that's the thing we're putting in our brains. And we're going to look this morning at Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. Let's just read it. It goes like this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. This is intense. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak, how to trip up the people of Israel. Underline that. That's going to be very important. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin underline that. That's going to be very important. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit is saying and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven and I will give to each one a white stone And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except for the one who receives it. That's our passage this morning. But before we dive into it, I want to talk to you about love for a second. I want to talk to you about love. Um, Everybody in the room has things they love. It's kind of part of what it means to be a human being. You have things you love and hopefully you've matured at least a little bit and you've Moved past having things you love, and hopefully you also have some people you love, and well, if you're at church, hopefully you maybe even have some room in your heart to love God as well. But one of the questions that I've been thinking about recently is this question: How do you know how much you love something or someone? Like, how do you know? You know, it's if we were to move past just that 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 surface layer, if we were to move past just I love this or I love that person. If we were to move into the next question, which is, well, how do you know? How can, can you quantify it? I've been thinking about that question recently. And, and here's how you know, here's how you know how much you love something or someone. It's actually very basic. You know how much you love something or someone based upon how much you're willing to sacrifice for it. How much are you willing to let love? Cost you? How much are you willing to suffer for love? And I realize that we're only like two and a half minutes into this message and it's already gotten very heavy. <laughs> but that's the nature of the topic of love. Let's think about moms and their little babies right now. Uh, do you know why moms love their babies so much? Well, the truth is, they love their babies so much for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they share DNA. Uh, they carried them in their bellies for nine months. But here's one of the really profound connections that we don't oftentimes think of. And one of the reasons that moms have such a, such a deep and undying love for their children from the very first moment that baby comes out, one of the reasons, not the whole reason, but one of the reasons is because in order for that baby to come out, it is painful. And so right up front, the mother has to suffer for the baby. And anything you're willing to suffer for is something you Love. Right up front. Recently, I've also been thinking about something really different. Really, really different. Um, it's not just recent. This is something that I've been fascinated with for a couple years. I've been fascinated with ultra runners. Ultra runners. Do you guys know what ultra runners are? Have you guys ever heard of an ultra marathon? yeah. Ultra runners, ultra marathons. Okay, so a regular marathon is a little over 26 miles. Like, that doesn't even get you entered into an ultra marathon. Ultra races are between 100 and some can be over 200 miles and people run them without stopping. Now, here's the crazy thing. Not only can people do this, people want to do this. (laughs) And this is the part that's really fascinating to me. Uh, I've been, for the last two years, I've been listening to podcasts with people who run 200 miles without stopping. There are dudes who run. The fastest ultramarathoner right now in the world is not a dude, it's a woman. She smoked the guys by over two hours on a 200-mile race. Okay? It was like 200. Josh, what is that race? 220? 240. The 240 Moab. I was wrong. It's 240. 240 miles running. People can do this, not only can they do it, but they want to do this. And so I've been consuming podcasts, I read articles about it, and here's what's kind of interesting. I've never run more than six miles in my entire life. (laughs) Like, I'm not really, I sometimes run, I like to run 5K and quit. You know, just give me the 3.2 and I'm out, baby. You know, that is it. I'm not an ultra runner, but I'm fascinated by it. And the reason I'm fascinated by it is because I'm fascinated by people who are passionate. You know, have you ever noticed that people who are passionate about anything, there's a magnetism and a gravity associated with that person and whatever they're into, right? Yeah, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. And I think the thing that draws me is the, is the passion. And that's what passion means, by the way. Passion means to suffer. And so to have passion or to be a passionate person is to love something to the point you're willing to suffer for it. That's why Jesus' experience on the cross is called his passion. That is love willing to suffer. That's what it means. And so I've wanted to start here because the frame that this text rests in is, is this. It is the frame of love, and it is the question that's behind that. What are you willing to let love cost you? So I want you to imagine a work of art. Imagine a Rembrandt or a Pollock or some other work of art. And I want you to think about the frame that surrounds it. For our time today, the text is the art, but the frame is this idea. What do you love and how do you know? Well, we read the text this morning, and it's Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum. Why don't you say Pergamum? It's probably the first time you've ever said that. You may never say it again. So we've already had a unique moment here. But before we get into the actual text, man, I have to do a ton of context. Do I have your permission to do tons of context? And by tons of context, I mean 20 minutes of context. Okay? So this is how it's going to work. I'm going to go about 20 minutes deep on context, and then we're going to wrap it together in about six and a half minutes after that. Is that cool? Can we we do that? All right. Because I need to give you a ton of Bible context. I hope you notice, and we can put it up, Stephen. We can put that little slide up. Yeah, let's do the other one, the first one. There we go. I hope you notice that Jesus is speaking to this church in Pergamum, and right up front he says, this is a city where Satan has his throne. And I need you to imagine ACDC music slowly fading in, hell's bells, Right? (laughs) highway to hell. Either you know whatever. I should have played it this morning. Bobby, can you pull it up on Spotify? But look, it's Satan City. Satan has his throne there, you know? You got to imagine Angus in his like schoolboy uniform and he's got his he's got his SG and it's just it's hells bells all the way, right? And you have to ask yourself why is this that way? Well, a little bit of context. Some of it is geographic and then some of it's going to be cultural and then we're going to get into a bunch of bible stuff. Okay, we'll start with geographic. First off, Pergamum was kind of like a city on a hill, and then, in addition to being a city on a hill, it had great temples. So if you can imagine some tall temples on a city on a hill, and then if you imagine that you were outside of that city in the countryside and you were looking into it, it would be like it would be an impressive sight. Any of you ever been to like Chicago and driven into the city and like you know you're, it's flat, 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 windmills, windmills, windmill city, you know and it's like amazing or even. Or even Manhattan. Anybody ever been to Manhattan or flown over Manhattan? It's like there's a vast expanse of concrete, and then out of the concrete comes these amazing towers. Yeah, same sort of a deal. So it would have been impressive, and it is speaking to this idea of a throne. It would have even seemed maybe visually like it. Then in addition to that, these temples that existed in Pergamum were of two different sorts of nature. One would have been... Essentially just like pagan worship stuff and we got to dig into the pagan worship here for a second because one of the temples Was to the healing god Asclepius. Can you say Asclepius? Asclepius Asclepius. and wouldn't you know that Asclepius's symbol was a serpent? Okay, so here we have Jesus talking about this is the, the throne of Satan It's his city And in that city, we know that there is a shrine. There was a temple to this god named Asclepius, who's a healing god, and his symbol is a serpent. And later, later in the book of Revelation, John says about the devil in chapter 20, he's the ancient what? Serpent. Yeah. So there's this idea that these things are overlapping. Okay, so city, temple, one of the temples to the god Asclepius, pagan worship. There we go. That wasn't the only temple that was there. Uh, As was pretty regular in Rome, there were also Roman uh, imperial cults, like a temple for the Roman imperial cult. And here's what you have to kind of have in your mind, because it's hard for us to get. You have to imagine that not only was the government the government, but the government was like, uh, it it at least sought to be an object of worship. Okay, So the Caesar was not just the ruler, the Caesar was also known as the son of God. The Caesar was not just the man with the most power. The Caesar was also known as Prince of Peace. So the Caesar was not just some guy. The Caesar was like the guy, and there were temples for the Roman imperial cult. And so there was this extreme mixture of nationalism and religion and worship. Just imagine all of that sort of coming together. It's not far away from what we have in our own country today just a little more organized. And so, the reason this is important, um, and you have to keep this in your mind anytime you're reading the book of Revelation, this is a big deal because following Jesus is not just some little nice appendage to an otherwise normal Roman life. It wasn't a way to find a little more peace it was a radical position. So if you were to say that Jesus is Lord, which is the earliest sort of like Christian proclamation, to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. And to say that Jesus is Lord is to say Rome is not. And so to live as a follower of Jesus, it was a radical diversion from both the pagan and the nationalistic expression of everyday life. You were putting yourself out there to be a follower of Jesus in a big-time way. So a radical reframing of the position. There was no mixture and of course because it was radical it brings trouble and we see it right up here. Not only is it where Satan has his throne but we see that this is probably where the trouble begins to happen Jesus says, you've remained loyal to me even though Satan has his throne there. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my, ser- my faithful witness, was martyred. So part of what we have to see here is that there are Christians there and the way they are and who they are is at such an odds with the prevailing culture, people are being killed, okay? And you have to ask yourself, why are they being killed? You have to kind of tuck that into your mind. Now you have to think about it like this. Imagine that we're a church and we're in Pergamum and some people are being killed because they don't worship the god Asclepius and they will not bow down to the Caesar and they no longer call Caesar Lord, but Jesus has become Lord. And imagine that one of the guys in our church, at least one, was killed because he lives at such great contrast with the prevailing culture. Now imagine what that might do to us psychologically, right? Right? How many of you would be wondering, well, how do I faithfully live to Jesus in this city? Right? That'd, be, that'd be sort of an important question, wouldn't it? Yeah, that was the question. And Jesus begins to speak to it. He says, you know what? You've been faithful. Well done. Now let's put the second one up. But I have a few complaints. And here are the complaints. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is that like of Balaam. Now who remembers Balaam? Anybody here sort of remember Balaam? Listen, it's forgivable if you don't, okay? It's from the book of Numbers, and it goes from chapter 22 to 31, all right? So that's nine chapters. We're not going to read it this morning. Do I have your permission to just tell you the story and that you would believe me? Listen, I've read it at least five times this week. I feel confident in my ability to tell it to you in a truthful manner, all right? But you should go back and read it. Here's the story of Balaam, because if you don't get Balaam, you don't get this passage. So you take everything I've told you about the culture, and you hold that. Now we're going to talk Balaam. Okay, so Balaam was a prophet. (laughs) And apparently, Balaam was somebody who had a reputation that whatever he blessed was blessed, and whatever he cursed was cursed. All right? So there's Balaam, prophet. Now there's this guy named Balak. And Balak was a king, and he was not a king in Israel, but he was a king of one of Israel's enemies and Balak is becoming concerned because Israel is sort of surrounding him and Israel as a tribe is getting strong and he is concerned about well maybe they're going to come and take over right and so he gets this idea I need a prophet specifically I need one like Balaam to come and to curse my enemies because if they will be cursed I can have victory and I can provide safety for my people understandable So what he does is he sends some of his best men and he sends a lot of money to Balak, to Balaam rather, and he says, Balaam, if you will come to my country and curse Israel, then I'm going to give you a lot of money. And so Balaam prays and says, God, is it okay if I go with these people and curse Israel and take the cash? And God says, do not go with these men. And they leave, all right? And Balak, the king, of course, is not used to being told no. So he says to his royal court, I'm going to send better men to Balaam. I don't know what that means. I'm going to send higher-ranking officials, maybe, to Balaam, and we're going to take more money, and we're going to tell them, look, you are going to be insanely rewarded. All you have to do is come here and curse Israel. And so they go back, and Balaam says, well, you know what? I need to ask the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? What did God already tell him? Don't go, right? But Balaam says, you know what? I need to ask the Lord. And so he goes and prays. And here's what's very strange. God says, you should go with him. You should go with him. But you can only do what I say, and you can only do what I'm doing. That's what he tells Balaam. And so Balaam is like, we're in right? We're in. Bro, where's the donkey? And so Balaam gets on his donkey, and he begins to ride. Now, you kind of have to have this in your your mind. Imagine this prophet. He's on his donkey. Maybe he's on his mule. And imagine that behind him are the royal court from King Balak and all of their money, right? And while they're on the road, the donkey stops, Balaam's like, what's up with that? And he beats his donkey, and it goes and stops a second time. He smacks the donkey around, and finally it goes, and it stops a third time. And at this point, it won't move at all. Balaam just beats the living tar out of his donkey, right? And here's where the story gets super strange, as if it wasn't already. It gets really strange here. Apparently, the Spirit of God comes on the donkey, and the donkey turns to Balaam and says, hey, What have I ever done to deserve this? (laughs) Begins to speak to him. Says, haven't I been a faithful servant to you my whole life? That's what he says to him. At this point, Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees why the donkey has stopped. Because in front of the donkey is an angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand. And the angel speaks to Balaam and says, listen, if it wasn't for the fact that your donkey has stopped these three times, I was going to kill you. He says, I oppose you, and I'm going to kill you. Balaam falls off of his donkey. Now, we just take a time out. Why was the angel of the Lord there opposing him with the sword and about to kill him? Because he was going someplace God did not want him to go, Right? So Balaam falls off, and he repents. And he's like, I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry, God. I've I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And God's kind of like, well, I forgive you. And as soon as that happens, Balaam's like, should I go? Should I go? Now, if he were smart, he would have gotten back on the donkey and gone straight home, right? But he says, God, should I go? And you know what God says? You should go. But you can only say what I'm saying. You can only do what I'm doing. So he gets there. King Balak's like, I know where the Israelites are. Come with me. You curse them. We're out. Balaam's like, well, let's have a sacrifice first. They build seven altars, kill seven bulls, kill seven rams. They have a little worship service. Balaam goes and prays, and he says, God, can I curse Israel? And God's like, no, you have to bless Israel. And so Balak has hired him to curse, and Balaam shows up, and he blesses Israel. He blesses Israel in front of Balaam. King wasn't stoked on that. He said, well, we'll try it again. They go to another place where there's a camp. Same thing, seven altars, sacrifices, the whole deal. Balaam says, God, can I curse them? Nope, you're going to bless them. He blesses them again. Third time, same thing. Balaam prays, God, can I curse them? no you got to bless them, and he gives Israel this unbelievable blessing in front of Balak, who wants them dead, right? He gives them an amazing blessing, and the king flies completely off the handle, you know? Basically like, I've brought you here. I've promised you all this money. All you have to do is curse these people, and Balaam's like, I can't do that because God won't let me do that, you know? And there's even that note in his framing to Balak, you know, like, I can't do it because God won't let me, you know? It's not that I can't do it because I don't want to do it, it's like, because God won't let me. That's always his refrain. Anyway, then like, the story seems to end, it's like, you know, scene, lights, poof. Then the lights come back up in, in chapter 25, and we see that the story is profoundly changed, and all of a sudden, in chapter 25, it essentially says this, that the men of Israel, went out and got some Moabite women and slept with them and sacrificed to their gods, ate the food, sacrificed to their idols, and worshipped false gods. And then Moses finds out about it and the anger of the Lord burns against them and 24,000 people die. You're like, how did this happen? What just happened? These stories are not connected. It's like, well... We can put it up in chapter 31. We get a little insight. This is another story, but Moses is referring back to the one I just told you, and he says, hey, why did you let these women live? These are the very ones who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord at Mount Peor. So in chapter 25, when the Israeli men slept with the Moabite women and worshiped false gods, where did this occurrence happen? You have to ask yourself, Well, we see it right here. Somehow, before Balaam leaves town, he has a meeting with Balak and says, I won't curse them, but I'll tell you how to get them. And why does he do this? What's the money, right? Now, let's put up the Revelation passage. Look what Jesus says. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel, he taught them to sin. Amazing. What's the point here? The point is, right before Balaam leaves town, he has a meeting with Balak, and he says, you know what, I won't curse them, but you can tempt them to sin, And if you tempt them to sin, then sin will bring about a curse. And what is the bigger narrative here? Well, the bigger narrative is is that Balaam had something in his heart. He had a love. He had a desire. He had a need to be satisfied in a particular manner. And he wanted to remain faithful to God. And so he arranges the circumstances to feign faithfulness, But to accomplish what both he and King Balak wanted in the end. And Jesus is saying to this church, you know what? Some people among you are like Balaam. What does that mean? Feigning faithfulness. Feigning faithfulness. Telling people it's okay to live this way, you can be faithful to Jesus and live this way. You can be faithful to Jesus and do that. You can be faithful to Jesus and be that sort of person. You you can you can you can do it. You, can just, you just do it like this, you know. And when we put all of this together with what we read at the beginning of this passage from Jesus, it's probably something like this: in a city where people are being martyred because of their devotion to Jesus, and in a city where people are concerned, how do I remain faithful to Jesus and a part of the city, right? How do I remain? Then the, then the temptation to be like Balaam has sprouted up. How can I be faithful but not really? And Jesus is saying faithfulness is faithfulness all the way through. And so I just want to show you a couple things here out of the text, and then we will be wrapping it up. What does this have to do with our text, all of these stories? Well, I just want to tell you for us, here's the church and in this place as well, that faithfulness to Jesus eventually brings contrast. You know, it's a weird tension. Uh, Christians are not called to just like run out into the country and build a little hut and isolate ourselves from other people so that we don't sin. You know, that's that's not the path for us we're actually supposed to engage culture we're supposed to be here we're not leaving campbellsville we're not leaving this region we're going to we're going to be here and we're going to be here all the way and at the same time we live in this dynamic tension how can we be be here but not how can how can we be here without spoiling ourselves how can we be uh not just kentuckians but how could we be americans without losing faithfulness to jesus right and jesus says there is only one way absolute faithfulness. And when that happens, it brings some contrast. And the contrast settles into this word, and it's called holy. That's a Bible word. Holiness is really important. Faithfulness to Jesus is the center of our love. And eventually, if Jesus is the center of our love, it will cost you and it will cost me something. If we love him most, it'll cost us something eventually. And that's where the contrast happens. We know we love Jesus when it begins to cost us something. And when, we experience the, and when we experience the cost, and we can say, he's actually worth it. So imagine this. Imagine faithfulness to Jesus making us losers in American culture, okay? At the point that faithfulness to Jesus brings contrast that makes me or you a loser in American culture, when we can say Jesus is worth the loss, we've been faithful to him. Why? Because it reveals that our first and only love is Him. Now, I also want to show you from this passage as well that when I'm talking about contrast, I'm not talking about contrast in a spiritual sense, you know? It's not just spiritual contrast. It's not just that we believe different things than other people believe, and so we have have a, a disagreement at the level of ideas. No, the contrast comes in our actual lives, it isn't just spiritual. Because your actual life is your spiritual life. And I hope you notice what we've been talking about this morning. What are the main things we've been talking about this morning? Money, food, sex. I mean, that's kind of the highlights, isn't it? Isn't it weird? See, money, food, and sex, these are all profound symbols for your spiritual life. And here's the thing. You can't miss the point. This is how we comfort ourselves. Money, food, and sex, these are all profound symbols that are really like stand-ins for how human beings comfort themselves. That's why food, sex, and money are always profoundly spiritual. They always speak directly to love. And so here's just what I want to say this morning. Uh, Jesus has an opinion about our sexual lives. Jesus has an opinion about who you're having sex with and when you're having sex with them. Jesus has an opinion. Why? Why? Because it's not just your sex life, it's actually a manifestation of your spiritual life. It's, it's touching something that will last forever. Uh, Jesus has an opinion about our money. Jesus has an opinion about where we spend money, who we give it to, and how much we keep. He actually does. And Jesus also has an opinion about things like food. Now everybody in here can take a big breath. I'm not about to dump a truck of um, guilt and shame on you when it comes to food. Uh, Let me tell you what food is really about in the Bible. Food is really about provision and fellowship. Read for that, worship. Food is always about provision and fellowship in the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, food was always a part of worship. Like you'd sacrifice an animal, and it's not like just that sacrificed animal. We wouldn't just leave it there, you know what I mean? So you gather up the animal, and who ate it? The priest ate that food, right? And, and, and to eat a food sacrificed to animals, especially when the priest did, it was, um, it was two things. It was saying, God, you have provided for me. I trust that you'll provide for me again. And it is also, in a weird symbolic way, it's a way of saying, uh, God, I share a table with you. You know? And that's why it's worship. So food... Uh, food was always this much bigger deal. And so in this regard, I just want to say that Jesus has an opinion about where we put our trust and what fellowship we give ourselves to. A couple weeks ago, I had some friends at my house around my table and we had some delicious snacks on the table and we had three really good bottles of Spanish wine and there's about like 12 of us around my table. And we were eating delicious snacks, and drinking Spanish wine. And the conversation was so rich. And we talked about the Lord. We talked about Jesus. And at some point in this conversation, um, someone basically said this. And I totally agree. Someone basically said, you know what? I have lots of friends who are not believers. I have lots of really good friends who are not believers. But my best, 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 best friends, the friends of my heart, they love Jesus. And what was the point they were making? The point was that our fellowship goes really much, much deeper, and Jesus has opinions about all of it. Jesus has opinions about our sex life. Jesus has opinions about our money. Jesus has opinions about fellowship and sharing. He has opinions about all of these things because they're all profound symbols of our spiritual life. Now, the full weight of the message is saved for the end. Look at The promises. Anybody who overcomes, anybody who's victorious, I'm going to give manna that's been hidden away in heaven, and I'll give you a white stone with a secret name. Super strange, huh? For the overcomer, manna from heaven and a white stone. Let's talk about manna, let's talk about the white stone, and then we're going to put it together. Um, You guys remember manna. Manna was the food that was served by God to the people of Israel when they were wandering in the desert. So manna is like God's provision. Uh, Manna is like God's kindness. Uh, Manna is God's love for Israel uh, spread out every morning. And my absolute favorite thing, it's it's one of my favorite things in the whole Bible, is um, manna means what is it. Isn't that amazing? So you can touch it, you can look at it, and you can taste it, and you can hold it, but you cannot name it. I love that. Which is to say that we are essentially fed, nourished, and sustained by mystery. Okay? So there's this sense in which God is providing something, and the promise for overcomers is that God is going to, to feed you on the mystery of, uh, of His presence. Food from God's table. And it's an, it's an invitation to fellowship. And it's also an invitation to worship. And it's an invitation to love. And I, we can never divorce ourselves From the context that Israel ate manna in the desert when they left Egypt. And you gotta gotta know that Egypt was the power of the day. So in the desert was where Israel lived separate. They were not a part of the ruling power of the day. They left all of that. They went out into the desert, and it's here that God gave manna. You know? It's here that God gave sustenance. It's here that God gave strength. Where is strength? It's not in. It's not in the halls of power in Egypt. It's, it's in the desert, you know? And then the second promise is that if you overcome, you get a, a white stone with a name on it that nobody knows except for the person who gets it. Now, let's just unpack this for a moment, okay? Let's just pretend I'm Jesus for a second, okay? This is going to be great. All right, here's a white stone. And the Bible says that you're the only person who knows the name on it, right? Who's the other person that knows what's name's on there? Me. So now you and I are the only people, and no one else knows, right? You guys seeing this? This is a parable about intimacy. For the person who overcomes, God is promising not only to name you, but now we share something. And how many of you know that as exclusivity increases, so does intimacy? That's that's why things are intimate. You know, It's, it's the exclusive nature. And so God is basically saying, for people who will be faithful to me, for people who will not... Commit Balaam's error of faithfulness with a loophole. For people who will not feign faithfulness but really love money, you know? For people who will not feign faithfulness but really love to gratify their sexual appetites outside of their married partners. For people who will not feign faithfulness but fellowship in a way that seeks to gain an advantage. God has something. And I hope you notice that the Bible says it's hidden manna, right? Hidden manna and then a stone with a secret name. And how many of you know that both of those are images of, like, scarcity and exclusivity? And if it is scarcity and exclusivity, then it's it's really about intimacy. Yeah, that's what it's about. What is God saying? God is saying if you won't look for intimacy in all kinds of sex outside of your marriage... And if you won't look for connection and fellowship with the powers of the age, that God will make a table for two. And he's going to serve the exclusive manna right out of heaven, and he's going to give you a name that only the two of you know. And you might be shrugging your shoulders, and you might be like, well, that's no big deal. Well, let me just say this. If that's what God is giving, then there's a possibility for our lives that is unmatched by anything the gods of the current age can provide. Like if God is willing to give these things, then there is something available to us even now that is unmatched by anything that America can give us. There is something available to us that the powers of the age cannot give to us. Let me say it this way. If you are excluded by the powers of the age, what does that mean? If you are not cool, if you are not rich, if you are not in with the powerful people of Campbellsville or in Washington, D.C., If you are on the margins, if your politics do not fit with the Democrats or the Republicans, good. If your dreams have changed, if you're awake enough to know that another sexual partner is not going to do the trick, if you're alive enough to know that another bit of cultural comfort is not going to fill you up and satisfy you, then good because there's a table set for you and God is going to feed you the delectable bites cooked in heaven's humble kitchen. He's going to call you by your true name. And how many of you know that the one person in the universe who knows who you really are is Jesus, right? Like your mom gave you a name, that's great. Uh, Culture will give you a name, maybe not great. But there is a name that you have and it is from Jesus and it is because he knows you right? And he's promising. I'll tell you one more thing about that white stone. Pergamum was a city in which almost all of the buildings were made out of black stone. And so Jesus is saying to the city who live in a black stone city, if you'll be faithful to, faithful to me, and if you won't Balaam your heart out for a, a lesser prize, then I will give you a white stone. What is that? Contrast. If you Jesus is saying, if you will will live a contrasting life, I will will show you the symbol of your contrast, and I will give you a name that no one else knows. I, I will give you manna, secret, hidden manna from heaven. You know? I will sustain you, is what Jesus is saying. I will give you, I will give you satisfaction. How many of you know that food satisfies? That's one of the reasons we like it, you know, a great meal. I will give you satisfaction. I will give you a name. If you will live a contrasting life, I will give you a contrasting name. I will give you a contrasting food. I will set a table. It will be me. It will be you. It will be no one else. We will know one another. How many of you would like to know God like that? How many of you would like to be known by God like that? Yeah. Yeah, Some of us are shaking our head. How many of you know that's also a scary thing, right? What if, what if God knows you well enough to put your name on a stone that no one else knows? Yeah, That's what it means. That's what it means. It means to live faithful to Jesus. Faithful to Jesus. Hey, if you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, twitter or instagram until next time peace to you